Thank you for clicking on this brand new episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. And in this episode, you might be thinking how this title of this podcast kind of relates to prevention. And trust me, it does. And that kind of goes back to our definition of what I consider prevention or kind of the theme of this podcast, which is the general notion that we should be trying to live our best lives possible with as little um, to none maladies or kind of negative things as possible. And if those things do come up, then having the uh, appropriate tools and kind of strategies to handle them and be able to continue living a the best life that you can for those circumstances. Now, this uh, guest that we have on, Dr. Jeremy Topin, is actually a critical care physician who used to work with the group that I train with currently at my hospital as an intern. And he not necessarily retired, but he took a step back and is now still practicing as a palm crit doctor, but in a much different environment after dealing with burnout. Now, many people deal with burnout. And in this episode, we're specifically going to be talking about it within the context of medicine. We do generalize a little bit. However, I think a lot of what Dr. Topin talks about in this episode is very generalizable um, with regards to tips for burnout, um, kind of what burnout entails and how that relates to prevention. On top of that, we talk about critical care in general from a preventive side, which yes, there is a little bit to it. And we talk about kind of what he does, work-life balance and a lot more. So this is going to be a very interesting episode. And just a little background on uh, Dr. Topin. He did his medical school at Rush, uh, followed by training in internal medicine at the University of Chicago, followed by a Palm Crit Care Fellowship at Northwestern. He is an avid writer about topics in medicine on his personal website, jtoppinmd.com, which will be linked down below in the description. He's also been featured on various podcasts and also in various news outlets for topics in medicine, burnout, and just different topics around there. And then also, most interestingly, recently, given the recent events in kind of Ukraine and Russia with that war going on, um, Dr. Topin actually went and volunteered um, as a frontline healthcare worker there. So that is something we talk about near the end of this podcast. And I think it'll be a great podcast for you to listen to. It's a little bit different than what we typically do around here, but still related to prevention. If you enjoy this podcast and want to support us, the best way to do so is by rating and reviewing the show. And you can do that on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And uh, also check out our YouTube channel and subscribe there. The full video episodes are uploaded there. And now let's get into this episode. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now, here's your host, Raghav Sharma. Welcome back, everyone, to another brand new episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. In this episode, we are talking to someone who I kind of have heard about through the grapevine. The legends of him still ring in the hospital that I uh, train at. Um, He is a former faculty there within the critical care staff. Today, we're talking a little bit about burnout mental health, and a little bit about his experiences as a volunteer in Ukraine. This is Dr. Jeremy Toppin. Um, he did his medical school at Rush, did his uh, residency in internal medicine, eventually becoming a palm crick care physician um, at the hospital that I'm training at. He's been featured in various podcasts talking about uh, like just end-of-life care, burnout, a whole bunch of different things. I'm super excited to get into it. So welcome, Dr. Toppin. Thank you, Raghav. Thanks for having me on your show. Is that Toppin or Topin? Sorry, I'm very bad about clarifying these things. Right, Topin. But uh, Topin. All right, there's lots of iterations of it. Respond to pretty much anything. All right, that's that's essentially my motto as well. So the first question is, what led you to critical care medicine? It's not a field many choose. It's a pretty intense field. How'd you get there? Yeah, you know, uh, I always thought I was going to be either a family physician or med peds, take care of people from the day they're born to the day they die. And then... Uh, you know, did my rotation kind of through the ICU at Rush as a medical student and loved it. Loved the physiology. I love the immediacy, um, kind of being able to see, you know, hypothesis testing and, and, and seeing interventions and, and they resolve in a matter of minutes to hours as opposed to titrating antihypertensive medications and realized maybe I was wired for a little more immediate gratification. But, I, you know, when I did uh, my residency, um, I just found that again, the rotations in the ICU, both on the PED side and the adult side, 
the attendings there were the most dynamic. Um, the teaching was just, uh, you know, kept me awake, you know, as you're so exhausted. Um, and that's when I started to really entertain, you know, pursuing critical care. Uh, briefly toyed with doing both home and, I mean, uh, both uh, pediatric and adult. Realized mm. that lifestyle is horrible uh, <laughs> and uh, eventually settled on adult pulmonary critical care. So did you know that it would be so intense that lead to kind of these feelings of things that you talk about these days like burnout? No, you know, I think the idea of burnout really didn't enter back then. I mean, it was all exciting and exhausting, but that's just the world of being a resident and a fellow. You just always assume it gets a little bit easier and a little bit uh, less fatiguing as you kind of move up the ladder. So I think the concept of burnout really wasn't as prevalent or talked about, uh, definitely during training. Um, but I always thought, you know, as you kind of you know, get a little bit older, you can kind of do a little more poem than critical care. But again, the model when you're training and, you know, I trained at, uh, you know, Northwestern University of Chicago, these academic centers, that's all you see. You don't actually see what it's like out mm -hmm. in the community, out in private practice. So you have this view of, you know, they're just always at home relaxing while the fellows and the residents are doing the bulk of the work. <laughs> a little bit different when, when you're out in, in, the community and in private practice where you're doing a little bit more of that heavy lifting. Although, as you know, working at Amita, uh, always have uh, a, a strong core of talented interns to help us out while we're there. Appreciated. Um, <clears throat> what point did you find out or did you realize that you were getting to the stages of what we call burnout? And for those listening back home, we will uh, kind of talk about this a little more, the definitions, what the actual was feeling. But when did you realize this and what did you do afterwards? Yeah, I think probably was in about year 12 or 13 uh, of practice. Uh, I was in my mid 40s uh, and just a lot of things were going on at the same time. I mean, work uh, you know, definitely the newness of it, you know, was kind of gone, but, but more of the grind. We were a very busy practice. Um, we had uh, picked up another hospital, which led to really more weekend call. A um, couple of things at home. I mean, just a lot of activity with my kids. Um, good and, and, and bad, just sort of the ups and downs of, of being a parent and raising challenging, challenging kids and just trying to juggle all that. Um, and balance my other outside interests. And I wasn't doing it well. Um, I, you know, became sort of slowly a physician that when I was younger, I'm like, I'm never going to be like that. Mm -hmm. And I think it really hit home when, you know, you guys fill out those, uh, those evaluations of, uh, of all the attendings and their teaching. And, you know, there's a couple other hospitals we go to. And usually every year it's, it's you know, our group or at least me in general, got very positive reviews, was one of the stronger teachers, you know, and, and, and enjoyed reading my mm -hmm. reviews. And I started noticing they, they weren't the same, uh, that they were beginning to fear me, that I, uh, on rounds, uh, they were afraid of having wrong answers or not being prepared. Some of the new nurses that were coming in were scared of me, which I was shocked because I tried to be an advocate for them. And some of the more senior nurses had to tell them, no, 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 he's a nice guy. He's a good guy and all that. And I realized, I may think I'm, I'm doing well and coping, but the, the truth was very different. And that's when I realized things, you know, I needed to, to make some changes um, and started to try to figure out how, because, you know, that's another story altogether, you know, how to make those changes. It's funny you mentioned those evaluations because I actually just filled them out today. And it sounds like you guys actually read those. So I might uh, have to go yeah. back and I might have to go back and uh, add some comments to those because you guys, uh, uh, Dr. Toppin's group is phenomenal. Um, I worked with a bunch of his other colleagues at the hospital. Um, they were excellent teachers, some of the best that I've had at the hospital. So I might have to go back and do those evaluations. Um, people at home might be thinking, I'm talking to a critical care physician. Uh, what does that have to do with preventive medicine? Because when you think of critical care, you're thinking of something has happened. Shit has hit the fan. Someone's had a heart attack. Someone's had a stroke. Someone's in like respiratory failure, whatever's mm -hmm. going on. Where is the scope for preventive medicine for this? And the question is, what does preventive medicine mean to you as a crit care doctor? Yeah, it's an interesting and, and good question. I think, you know, the, the first thing I think of is it's the absence of, of preventative medicine that often can lead to being in the ICU, um, sort of one of the sequela. Um, I do think, though, that it's an opportunity to address 
and, you know, and, and, and maybe have a paradigm shift for some of the patients as they recover uh, the immediacy of the experience, kind of maybe there's an opportunity to intervene and, and approach their disease in a different way, or maybe they've just been diagnosed with it. Um, and so it's an opportunity to not just help figure out the deranged physiology, but you can still help modify their approach to their disease. Um, it, it can be very motivating when the ventilator comes out to maybe address smoking issues uh, or compliance with uh, BiPAP. So, you know, those are always good opportunities to, to take care of or take uh, advantage of. And this is one of the things that I actually like to strike home on uh, quite a bit in this podcast is that it's not only primary prevention. You can practice prevention at any stage. It's primary, secondary, tertiary, quaternary. And like you're saying, some patients might be really motivated after some sort of devastating or some critical illness to actually make some lifestyle changes and either practice secondary, maybe tertiary prevention um, to whatever extent they may be. So I definitely can agree with you there. Um, next up is kind of when patients go to the ICU, I know you were kind of mentioning this a little bit with smoking and whatnot, but what are some of your, we're going to start off very basic with this podcast before we get into the burnout, all of that. But what are kind of some of the high yields for patients to stay out of the ICU? I mean, no one expects to end up there, but kind of how, what are the high yields to stay out of there? Yeah. So, you know, again, it's sort of a unique world, right? I mean, a lot of things that happen are not necessarily preventable. It's just a consequence of, you know, uh, pneumonia and your body's own ability to respond or not respond. But I think with that, you know, routine health maintenance can address some of the issues, right? Getting the pneumococcal vaccine can help prevent um, severe pneumococcal disease. It's not absolute, but it can reduce the risk. Um, getting your COVID vaccine, obviously, is the most recent uh, uh, you know, example where you may still get COVID, but exceedingly your chances of being in the ICU are drastically reduced. I mean, to the point where that's the first question I ask when I start seeing someone on the floor, are you vaccinated or not? And I literally breathe a sigh of relief when they do, because for the most part, they're not going to be in my ICU. Um, but I think, you know, for those that have diseases or illnesses that, um, can be derailed, I mean, you know, routine following up with your cardiologist for managing your heart failure, um, you know, diabetes, um, it's so hard now. I mean, and we see so many people come in for DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis because they can't find an endocrinologist owning your disease, educating yourself about it so that you can more than just be a, a, a passive taker of the medications, but be an active engaged in your own health. So I think that's probably the, the best thing is just take an active role in your health, be interested, be curious, don't assume, ask questions, see your doctor regularly if you can. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know, I'm kind of getting a little broad and, and so forth, but mm -hmm. I think those are the main things, but I think even more so uh, once you are sick and in the hospital, having advocates for you, having, uh, family members or friends be around, you tend to be vulnerable and, and, and nervous. And it's tough to advocate for yourself when you're, you know, when you're ill. So I think having other people to kind of help, you know, ask the questions you may not be thinking of as, as you're sort of under the weather. Um, and don't just assume, uh, everything is being done correctly. And so I think advocates when you're ill are very important too. Definitely. I think uh, another thing to add on to that, which I've had, uh, several other guests on, including Dr. Travick. I don't know if you ever worked with him when you were at, uh, Amita. Um, he is very passionate about end of life care. We also had another guest kind of talk mm -hmm. about this and that is you can still practice prevention in these critical scenarios, even if the prognosis is poor by kind of preventing over medicalization. That's quaternary prevention, right? You have kind of, um, living wills, uh, as you can say, you can have directives of what you would want to happen because part of uh, preventive medicine is living a life that you want to live and kind of enjoying that in whatever capacity you can. So you want to speak to that? I know you're really passionate about that as yeah. well. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. You know, I, 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 I definitely, definitely an interest of mine, the over-medicalization of, of end of life. Um, and I think, you know, I hadn't looked at it as a, as a preventative medicine way, but absolutely. I think, I think we need to have discussions, uh, earlier, more often. I mean, I'm in my early fifties and, and this would be the time to have them, not when you're in your seventies. I mean, what, what makes a life worth living and understanding 
what that is for yourself or your partner or your family so that when you get ill and there's questions about how aggressive to be and uh, I think can understand is, is that aggressive course something that you would want or is a value to you? Um, more is not always better. Um, we have so many things at our disposal. Uh, you know, you've seen it, you know, over the course of your year in the ICU mm-hmm. and your training, but you know, we can support the body and organs well past the point that they should. Um, but that's not the point. The point is to hopefully recover and have a quality of life. And that, you know, if the chances of recovery are, are, are exceedingly low and that, that medical course is going to be very aggressive and, and very involved, that may not be what you value. And so having these conversations up front, um, because, you know, in the ICU scenarios, pop up that you can never have fathomed. Um, and we often focus just on that question of DNR, DNI, you know, do you want, if your heart stops, uh, to be intubated or compressions? And that's a very important conversation to have, but that's just the tip of the spear, mm-hmm. you know, there, the, and that is also most likely the least likely issue to come up. There are so many interventions well before that, that may or may not be appropriate depending on a person's values and preferences and having more conversations, uh, earlier and with more depth and breath are, are very important. <clears throat> I don't want to linger on this topic too much longer. And speaking of kind of value, what people value in life and how they would want to live, what they uh, enjoy. Um, you talked a little bit about you noticing your mood changing and <clears throat> kind of the way that you interact with others changing. And we're going to start getting to the meat of kind of this topic. And one of the reasons I want to talk to you is burnout. And physicians are one of those uh, persons or people with those careers that experience high levels of burnout. There's a lot of these charts out there that kind of rank it by specialty. Critical care is unfortunately near the top due to as you're once again staying. There's just so much demand going on. There's just um, between the paperwork, the actual complexity of patient diseases, physiology, all that. There's just so much going on. What does the feeling of burnout entail? What does it actually feel like from someone who has experienced it? And how can it be potentially prevented? Uh, so a uh, good question, complex answer. But, you know, for me, it was definitely a slippery slope. Like I didn't realize I was in it until I was in it. Uh, definitely my approach to, to things just changed in general, not just medicine, but, but everything. Um, just more frustrated easily. Um, my interactions were more more terse. Um, my patience for complicated patients and their families and the complexities and the dynamics. I, I used to value uh, helping families navigate that in the unit, those extra hour of conversations that, you know, you don't bill, you don't, you don't get paid for, but are really important in helping families through very difficult times. And I just didn't want to be there. Um, I at home really didn't have the the patience to kind of really be present with my family and the kids. Um, again, things I valued like the teaching obviously was becoming much more short and frustrating. And I just wasn't enjoying what I was doing. You know, there's sort of like, you know, kind of look at the wins, the frustration ratio uh, and everything just felt more frustrating. And the wins in medicine that were sustaining just seemed so few and far between. Um, and, and that's sort of how I, I felt. And, and I just didn't feel I had the ability to be present anywhere, whether it was at work, at home with the kids, uh, in my own sort of social life. I just really wasn't feeling satisfied. And that's when I realized I kind of needed to, to sort of change things up. I think a lot of people have felt similarly. I mean, even as an intern right now, even one year in medicine uh, during the uh, Omicron peak, I was I was in the ICU working that, and I definitely felt similar to that. But for you, it was career changing. It changed kind of the trajectory of career. Obviously, I'm not quitting medicine because of this one terrible month. How do you know when it's something that's like you really need to take action? Because you took massive action at this point. Well, I did, and I, you know, it's interesting because I'm still pra- I'm still practicing medicine. Yeah. I'm actually kind of practicing it full time, uh, just a different environment. I, I decided I needed a change. Um, I went part time, um, so I cut down from fo- uh, from forty six weeks to twenty three. Um, wanted to spend more time with the family. I enrolled in a master's in public health. Uh, talk about preventative health. Uh, you know, my my interest was. Um, you know, instead of writing about end of life issues, 
uh, and in trying to impact people on a person to person basis, how can I do it on a population basis? Mm -hmm. And so through health policy is where I thought maybe I could uh, play a role. And so enrolled and and started uh, doing a program. Um, And, you know, that helped. Um, But I think my understanding of burnout kind of evolved. And, you know, we talk a lot or, you know, there's often a lot of talking, I'm sure it's been on your show, um, moral, moral injury. Um, and I think, you know, I, I recognized it wasn't necessarily medicine that I, burned me out. It's sort of, I just wasn't able to do it in the way I valued it, you know, coming full circle, you know, where I've, I've been a solo practitioner in a small regional hospital in central Illinois. So it's a 110 bed hospital and nine bed ICU, never had a critical care doc before, kind of ended up taking a part-time sort of three, four day a week job here right before COVID accelerated. And then when it did, this was no longer just a three and a half day a week job. Our ICU mm-hmm. was everywhere else filled. We ended up with 16 ICU beds, 16 ventilated COVID patients, nowhere to transfer. We had to take care of them. Mm-hmm. And that Omicron surge that you went through, as I did, I've never felt more valued as a physician. Um, I was working crazy hours, um, exceedingly stressful, more stressful than at any point in my life and operating alone without the rest of the group that you've been working with to help support mm-hmm. through it. But actually, I never once felt burned out. I felt mm. actually more energized because I felt that almost every interaction was a value, was, was, was a value. And so even if it was just on a, a patient on the floor and there's nothing else to do, I was helping the hospitalists who are just anxious and nervous, helping yeah. to relieve some of their tension. In the ICU, um, being physically there to help, even often these patients, once they're intubated, their course often you know, w- was ultimately one where they wouldn't survive. I knew that I at least could bring to the table minimizing other complications of that aggressive critical care and ventilating them in ways uh, that may be more comfortable or with the, you know, the, the most current up-to-date practice for COVID. I felt that almost everything I was doing, I was a value-added kind of proposition, and that felt good and sustaining. And I think in hindsight, um, the model and, and the way we were working, at least I was working back then, is we were just seeing so many patients for various reasons that a lot of them probably we didn't need to be on, but for various reasons we were. Mm-hmm. And it just felt that we weren't really doing much to add to their care. We were just sort of an extra layer and part of this medical industrial complex that didn't really feel good about what was going on. And it was taking away from other things such as being with my family. And I was becoming resentful of that. I never resented the time I've been spending here when things are crazy. And so I I my understanding of the mechanism of burnout has kind of changed. And so I think, you know, a prescription for people of how to avoid it is you got to sort of find meaning and value in what you're doing and finding practice environments that maybe can adapt and change as that meaning changes for you and that, that environment changes. And so I think that's on both us as physicians and both as we're becoming more and more employed uh, as opposed to private practice mm-hmm. as the model, it's on institutions to recognize that and for them to adapt and change as well. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventedmedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. I want to tie a couple of things together uh, that you just mentioned. And a couple of them are, you were talking about a change of environment. When it comes to burnout, you're talking about finding meaning in what you're doing. But you also mentioned uh, kind of becoming more uh, of employees versus private practice within medicine itself. And then even generalizing it more to other careers, which have high rates of burnout, maybe law, um, other high stressful careers. I don't exactly know what's out there. I'm not very well read on the literature of the highest burnout careers, but what can we, and also speaking of that, you're uh, kind of interested more in the health policy, all of those kinds of larger level things. What do you think we can do in stressful careers to reduce burnout? I know you're specifically within the field of medicine, so we can talk about that. But if you're able to generalize it all, what can we do? Yeah. So I think the first thing that I've learned, I think we have to hold boundaries. 
Um, I think as physicians, we often, um, the model has been like, there's just more work, do more, like do more. Saying no is difficult. And there's various reasons for it. I mean, you know, another patient who's sick, you know, it's hard to kind of, you know, say, oh, I, you know, I have to pass it off to someone else or the next doc. Uh, you don't want to do that. You know, we sort of learn that in residency and training. Uh, the hospital asks us to take on more responsibility, a new committee or a new project. And, you know, you're afraid that if you don't say yes, and then they'll ask another group to do that. Um, I think it's important to, to recognize we can't do everything where, you know, and, and, and whether it's ego or hubris or fear or whatever it is, I think learning that it's okay to hold boundaries, that it's important because I, I'm a better physician when I, when I recognize my limits and, and, and hold them. Um, I think part of burnout is also the lack of empowerment where you feel you have no control. And I think holding boundaries appropriate boundaries helps you feel you do have some control of your environment. Um, and I think when you start doing them and you realize the world doesn't come crashing and all of a sudden people don't think you're horrible or you're lazy or you're looking to avoid work, you realize, oh, and, and it can be a model for others who start to do that. And so that's something that I have felt uh, has been helpful uh, and, and been one of my advice to others um, in terms of a piece of how, how, of how to do that. But I think, you know, you also need to find some balance outside of medicine and things that are sustaining things that give energy. I've tried to be much more mindful about, am I doing something that's fatiguing me outside of medicine? Or am I doing something that's, that's, that's adding energy, um, and, and valuing my time. And again, part of that boundary and, and so forth. Time is probably our most valuable commodity for anyone in any profession, you know, and how we choose to spend it. And uh, just being more thoughtful about how I, I spend my time outside of medicine and making the most out of that. Definitely. Um, I think within medicine itself, it's definitely very challenging to find those boundaries and hold those. I mean, I can only speak for myself as a resident, especially as a resident, you're asked to take on more and more. That's part of learning. You're supposed to take on a lot. It yeah. look, look like you're going to say something. Go ahead. No, I mean, and that's, you know, it's tougher as a resident. Uh, it's a little bit easier as a fellow, um, as an attending, maybe easier. But that's the model we get as as a resident. You know, you it's sort of frowned upon to push things off, you know, like it's all and part of that's just your own ethics and, and personal responsibility. I mean, it's crazy, right? Like, right. In medicine, you can have 103 fever, sick as a dog. You're not supposed to take time off or you feel bad by saying I can't make it because you know how much more work there's going to be. Like literally, you know, I, I wrote about this, you know, I, I went back and took call the day my wife miscarried. I went home in the morning when she I miscarried. I read about that. That was, that was quite an article. Yeah. And in hindsight, that's crazy. Um, my wife was going to have her knee replaced. And I had, you know, our group uh, covers that LTAC that you, uh, mm -hmm. Holy Family. And by me taking the day off to go to her surgery, we were going to be short. And I'm like, hey, I'll cover the LTAC. I'll go early in the morning. I'll see the patient's. You know, take that off your plate. My wife's surgery wasn't until nine. I'll go in at 5 a.m. There ended up being a patient we had to intubate, was unstable. And I literally couldn't leave the bedside. And my wife went, went and had her surgery on her own. I met her later. But, you know, we do these things. And it's like, again, I think holding appropriate boundaries. It's okay when you're sick to take some time off. It's okay when your family needs you. Others will back you up. I wouldn't want any of my partners to be coming in if their wives were, were miscarrying. So I think, but we we learn these behaviors and, and there's a sense of shame by holding boundaries. It's like a failure. It's like we're weak. And and I think we have to we have to applaud it and, and look at it as as a strength. And I think that needs to be modeled for residents, you know, allow them to speak up for themselves so that it's easier to do it when when you move forward. I know there's a huge push for residency unionization. Um, there's a lot of news. I don't know how much you're reading on that, but I'm all for it. Yeah. Um, you know, it was interesting. They, we tried to unionize. Uh, uh, there was there was very heavy discussions when I was an intern at the University of Chicago. There was some discussions and ultimately voted against it. And there was so much tension with administration. Frankly, mm -hmm. we were treated very well um, on the medicine side. In hindsight, it was a very progressive program, we, we were given a lot of not only autonomy, but um, I mean, they really did care 
as opposed to just, you're just interns to deal with it. But um, yeah, it, you know, we flirted with that before. There's, there's always a push. I think there definitely should be a much more of a voice. I think it's easy to talk about wellness. It's a lot more difficult uh, and a bigger challenge to actually execute that. Definitely. And make sure that that's held important. Now, there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that aren't necessarily physicians that might not know what we're talking about when we're saying residency, fellowship, kind of all of these things. So I want to generalize it a little bit. You were talking about kind of taking time off of work if you're sick, if you have significant life events going on, if something happens, for example, I'm at an urgent care right now and someone hurt his back and he's like, uh, this company, this large corporation is going to make me work despite like having a limitation and being able to lift things because of my back injury. And it's just things like that where people are always worried about going to work. They're not worried about their health. They're not worried about sequela of anything else of like what might go on. This man is like in his seventies, like who knows what could happen? Is this back being going to progress? Is he going to, whatever is going to happen. And do you think that a lot of this comes from a personal level that as people, we have to set boundaries or do you think it's more important to set this to like kind of a policy or legislative or even company policy levels? I think it's going to be both. It'd be a, you look, you'd like to think that uh, any place of employment values their employees, values their health. A healthy employee is going to be a much more productive employee. And uh, and there are, I'm sure, and there, and there are workplaces, I think, that do a better job than others. Again, as a physician, I haven't had the opportunity to have a lot of jobs outside the world of medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it, it, it ultimately, all, most of these chains, right, are usually worker driven. You know, uh, they, they really have to be the ones to push to make the change. I mean, you hear about the unionization, Starbucks and Amazon, these places have actually good benefits and so forth. But obviously, um, th- th- there's a lot of push to, um, you know, sort of work their employees to get the most, extract the most out of them. That's definitely been the case in medicine, right? I mean, they squeeze a lot out of you as, as an intern early in your training and uh, moving forward. So I think um, I think policy is good from above. That's slow and incremental. Um, I think where it's most impactful and most personal, where it helps you as an individual, is is learning to hold those boundaries. I think that that is the place to start. While I think the bigger picture is going to be slower, is going to be more on a policy basis. Definitely. I know you're not a psychiatrist. So I want to tie this in a little bit to uh, some psychiatry. Burnout is somewhat similar, some might say, with poor mental health. Not necessarily a diagnosis of like schizophrenia or anything like that, like an actual psychiatric condition. Maybe more along the lines of like depressive episodes all those kinds of things. And one of the concepts we've talked about in this podcast previously is kind of what you're talking about, which is where you find those things outside of kind of work that feed you, that don't drain your energy, what uh, one of our guests called kind of like your flow state, quote unquote. Um, Do you think that number one, burnout is related to depression? I don't think too many people talk about those things interrelatedly. And then number two, kind of what are your feeding activities? I know you're an avid water polo fan. What does work-life balance look like for you? Uh, So I think to to address sort of the mental health issue, I think that's huge. I mean, that is health. Um, and so th- as far as relation to burnout, I think probably anxiety and depression are associated. I'm not sure which is first chicken or the egg on that. Um, I know that, um, I went through a couple episodes of anxiety, um, during that time with, uh, an episode, uh, with, you know, with my son, uh, for several weeks, uh, things were very heightened as, uh, we were going through a, a lot of, a lot of trauma and recognized what anxiety is. I hadn't had it before. Um, I think in general, uh, particularly amongst physicians, but in general, we don't talk about mental health enough. We don't talk about how it impacts things. I think they're talking about shame. There's a lot of shame in talking about it. I think if, you know, you talked about as much as you talk about how your back hurts with your neighbor or whatever, mm-hmm. and you, reckon, you know, you'd realize how many other people around are suffering the same way. You could actually share, oh, yeah, this chiropractor was great for me over here. This doctor was good. We could learn kind of what's helping other people, what's working to cope as opposed to sort of trying to cope and deal in silos. So I think um, that is a huge issue that we need to be more open and honest about. Um and then uh, the other part, I'm sorry, the other part of your question. 
Uh, but before I get to that, I'm going to ask it again, but I want to add, I want to add a quick comment in here. I think that part of the problem with burnout and these kind of the taboo about talking about mental health conditions is that kind of if someone is experiencing a depressive episode, not saying they're depressed, then they might not be able to talk about it with someone because then all of a sudden, like, let's say whatever employment scenario they're in, unfortunately, it may be worse in medicine. They can't say I'm feeling this way mm-hmm. for the fear of either some sort of retribution, whatever happening. And that contributes to this feeling of being caged in, not being able to enjoy things, not getting meaningful connection. It kind of feeds into burnout. And like you're saying, it kind of sounds like the chicken and the egg where like it feeds into each other, where you can't talk to someone about it. You start feeling more alone in a sense. You stop finding meaning in things. And then you get even more uh, into depressive episodes, panic and all these other things start setting and it kind of spirals out of control. I just wanted to add that in there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the second part of that question was kind of what are those activities that feed you? And for you, what does work-life balance look like? Yeah. So uh, work life, I'm still, I mean, I think that'll, you know, we're always going to struggle to figure out what work life balance is. But I, I, you know, things that, that I've learned that feed me, that sort of give me energy, um, you know, a couple of things. I, I started doing triathlon, you know, during the end of fellowship, out of shape, overweight, um, had two young kids, no sleep. Uh, my son didn't sleep through the night till I think he was like five. I mean, it was just awful. <laughs> I would get more sleep moonlighting than I would at home. So, um, I ended up, you know, I used to ride a bike a lot as a kid and, and ended up a friend of mine, uh, had a free bike he got from riding across Illinois and he gave it to me and I said, I'm going to do a triathlon. And, and so I started, ended up doing some triathlons and ended up after a few years kind of moving up to, to doing some iron distance ones. And I found that from a mental health standpoint, long runs, long bike rides, swimming in the morning was centering. I mean, I don't do yoga. I don't do meditation, but I think it probably has a very similar impact for me. The days that I would miss my morning workout, I was a lot more scatterbrained at work. I had a lot more trouble adapting to the the, the curveballs that are always going on in the ICU versus when I would get that run or swim in the morning, I just was, you know, whether it's flow or what, I was able to take things more in stride. And so I realized and recognized that exercise in some capacity was important for my my health. And that's been kind of one of the things that's continued to center me. The water polo, I played in college and thought I kind of gave that up. And then through, uh, you know, a fluke, ended up playing on a master's team uh, at the age of 35 with a bunch of 23-year-olds and, and <laughs> have since played with them for over 10 years. And unfortunately, COVID, our team is sort of disbanded. But one, I just love the sport and love the team part, right? I was missing that with the with the long distance sort of training. That's all solo and alone. But being part of a team and working and building on something together and, and playing off of each other, that was very fulfilling and sustaining. And uh, got to really know these guys and it became a combination exercise, team, friends, all kind of blended together. And then I was even able to bring my son into it quite a bit as he grew up and started to play water polo and they were able to be kind of older brothers to him. So trying to bring the family. So exercise in that way, sort of uh, being part of a team and then concerts, music, live music to me is very energizing. Uh, it's been, you know, that's been one of the most devastating parts of COVID, you know, mm-hmm. the absence of being able to go to a concert and and just sort of, you know, smaller venues, not big ones, but just being able to listen to live music. It could be one in the morning and I'm just sort of, you know, jazzed and, and the whole week just sort of pumped up from it. So those are things I found to be very sustaining, trying to still incorporate. And the balance is, you know, I don't think at any point my very... I don't think in my life I've ever have truly found balance, but I think trying to recognize what's out of balance and trying to correct it is important, you know, and just when I, my family needs me and things are more there, I need to step away from work for a little bit. And I found a work environment that understands that and is willing to, willing to do that. And I don't take advantage of it. Uh, when I need to start exercising a little more focus, my wife understands and, and we sort of have learned as a family how to navigate the changes because what I need now versus what my family needs now in six months, I've learned uh, no way to predict. So uh, that's an ever evolving uh, uh, challenge. 
just to throw my two cents in here, I know you're the featured guest here, but uh, I think one of the things that you touch on here is that people always struggle to find balance in their lives. There's just so many different variables that life throws our way. We don't really know um, what's coming tomorrow, the day after. We don't know what situation is going to be in front of us. And the way I like to talk about it is through like dials where you just have various parts of your life that are dialed up at some points and you're like, okay, that's not working. Let's dial it back. Let's put something else up, maybe exercise, family time, whatever it may be. And now that uh, maybe we can go to more live concerts, stuff like that. And I'll go ahead. Oh, no, I think it's a great analogy with the dials. I mean, you have different lanes that you you work in and, you know, what do I need a little bit more of? And, 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 And learning to recognize that, I think, is the key. You know, I have all these different venues of, of, of outlets but I'm still learning at the age of 50 to read within myself and trying to recognize things earlier rather than later. I mean, again, that burnout, I didn't realize I was burnt out until I was well into it. Mm-hmm. And trying to just self-monitor and be more self-aware is a skill I think a lot of us need to work on as we're just so busy going through our day. I, you don't. When do you have that time to just sort of do an internal monitoring of yourself and why did I get angry a little bit quicker today than not or why am I feeling more frustrated and you know, when do you have time to be reflective and trying to incorporate that's really important. Exactly. And the other thing that I want to add is that I think that exercise specifically is one of the things that helps us do that because it gives you some aspect of control. This is something that I can do on my own time for myself or whatever reason that might be. And this is one of the things that we also kind of stress in this podcast that exercise is not just weight loss. We're not just talking about calories here. Sure, exercise is great for preventive medicine, for reducing various comorbidities, whatever it may be. It can help with weight loss, mostly for maintenance, but it is so much more than that. It helps you get kind of a sense of control because you can do some part of your life. It gives you some place to center yourself and improves your mental health. Um, It can help reduce symptoms of burnout as we've been discussing on this. That's just something that I want to hit home over and over because unfortunately we have this idea of exercise in our society where you exercise to get in shape and that's all you do. That is like the sole reason for exercise. And obviously you as an example of, I'm sure you're doing for exercise as well to be healthier because you mentioned you're overweight, but it's definitely provided you a lot of other benefits. I think mentally it is the key for me. Um, definitely. You know, I, so right before COVID exploded, um, you know, I, I was having a lot of difficulty with concentration, focus, my memory in general has been one of my strengths. I found I was struggling a lot more. I, I, on rounds at, uh, at Amita, when I was doing the multidisciplinary rounds in the morning, I was finding I was being distracted by all the noises that were going on. And I ended up starting myself on some ADD medication. And what I found is that I wasn't exercising. When I exercised, I was centered and I was able to deal with all that. Uh, when not, um, I was needing the medicine. And, and now that I'm being able to be more consistent, I'm not taking it. So I, I couldn't agree more. There's, there's so much more value. And frankly, if you find that value other than weight loss, I think exercise becomes a lifestyle uh, and, and a pattern and, and, uh, and much more sustainable um, that way. Yeah, I cannot emphasize that more. And this is one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on because P, preventive medicine and prevention in general just has so many different facets to it. There's so many ways you can approach it with the ultimate goal of kind of living your life to the best way possible um, and enjoying to the best way possible, eliminating different barriers to do that, whether it is burnout in the sense, mental health issues, whatever it may be. Um, and I want to kind of shift gears now a little because you did something really fascinating. You went and volunteered in Ukraine during what's going on. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? I want to save some time at the end of this because I haven't talked to any personally about this and it's absolutely incredible. Um, Well, thanks. I, you know, you know, I didn't think it was, it's been very interesting people's response to, to, to doing this. It was just like a very personal thing you know, start, you know, we all watched, you know, images on the news, the first, the first few days and weeks. And, you know, we all were like, Oh, you know, most of us are like, how, what can we do? How can we help? And, you know, I thought, you know, there'd be an opportunity to volunteer as a physician out there. And, and I looked very early on for, for a venue to do that. Um, and surprisingly, it was very hard. I couldn't find a place. Um, you know, mm. you look for like Doctors Without Borders, but you kind of already have to be within their system to do it. And um, really, most of the, the organizations, it was very easy to donate money or potentially supplies. But as a physician, 
they was I couldn't really find something and I kind of had given up. But on social media, I saw some physicians who were tweeting about their experience working with an organization, SSF, uh, Rescuers Without uh, Frontiers. Um, and it's a French uh, Israeli organization. And I reached out to them and they connected me and eventually was able to kind of get vetted through their system and, and, and was able to make it work. So, um, yeah, it was just something, you know, that just, I wanted to do, I just wanted to do more than just sort of send money. I just kind of almost just felt the call to, to action. And so I didn't really know what to expect, but was able to go with a, with a, with a very good friend and nurse practitioner. We kind of went through it together and, uh, you know, again, trying to describe it, it was a, it was a very, it was a good experience. I'm really glad I did it. Um, not really a good sense of closure afterwards. I mean, you know, we go in for a week left and still the same issues there. I think a lot of mission trips that people do, you go as a group, it's like a week of surgeries or a week of a clinic mm-hmm. being opened up. You stack rack and pack the, the local population to come in. And when you're done, you all leave as a group and there's a sense of accomplishment. This is a little different, you know, this is a long haul and, and, and still struggling with kind of how to continue to support things. But, um, you know, I, I feel I do have a much better understanding of what's going on uh, with the refugees after having been there in person. What does medicine look like at that level? What kind of services are you providing? Because obviously you're not, I don't, at least in my experience from what I think is you probably wouldn't be operating like the ICU type setting. So what are you doing uh, there? So, so just really quickly, the setting where I volunteered, it was a medical tent uh, just across the border uh, from Ukraine to Poland. So it's, uh, um, it's a town called uh, Medica. It's a, it's, I mean, literally it's a nothing town. It's got a bus stop. And so what happens is the train in Ukraine lets people off at that border uh, area there. They cross from Ukraine to Poland and they catch the, the bus in Medica. So the little tent city has popped up there. It's one of the higher volume, at least initially, it was one of the higher volumes of uh, Ukrainian refugees. And and really, it, it's an urgent care tent. I mean, the people coming through very early on, so, you know, people were cold. They've been in line for hours. We were a little bit later, a little bit warmer uh, when I went. But for the most part, it's like an, an urgent care visit. Uh, people there, uh, you know, a lot of people wanted their blood pressure checked. A lot of anxiety. A lot of people want anxiety medication. A lot of viral uh, upper respiratory. I'm sure COVID, although we didn't really test for it there. Um, you know, so that that's the bulk of what we're doing, or just getting medications for people that were out um, and and trying to bridge them to hopefully their next location. Uh, so kind of pretty b- basic, but really important. You know, nothing sexy. This is not like front line. There's no bombs, yeah. no artillery. There's no bleeding or whatever. I mean, this is <laughs> it's this not was, a movie. Is what you're saying? No, which is interesting because there's a couple of docs there that are like looking for going across and and more action. And I think, uh, you know, uh, that's great. There's a lot of different reasons to go and a lot of figuring out where your skill set works. Um, I definitely wasn't using my critical care skills. I was just using my doctor skills. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that's kind of what it, what it looked like for us. Definitely. That was just kind of my curiosity. I wanted to ask you a little bit about that because firsthand account. So thank you so much for doing that. I think that's personally very inspiring. Um, if I get the chance to do something similar to that, I can't wait to do that. But right now I need to learn basic medicine first. Yeah. Well, you know, so it's, you know, we were there, there was a Hemonk fellow, uh, was out there. There's ER doc who's been doing it for 20 years. There's nurse practitioners. I mean, it's, you know, uh, at almost any level there's, there's value, uh, and you know, there it's, unfortunately it's going to be a, a long haul. I think, uh, this isn't going to change. They're already struggling to find healthcare providers to fill all the spots. So um, I think uh, anyone who is hearing this and interested, definitely opportunities. Um, And uh, so, uh, yeah, I, you know, shouldn't let uh, just being uh, what what your nine months into your training uh, be necessarily a barrier. I'm not sure Amita let you go, but um, (laughs) again, it's not very high level. It's just caring and listening and trying to problem solve, which, uh, you know, uh, at this level skill, we all can do. Definitely. Well, I hope you enjoyed your time on this podcast. We're coming close to the end and we have kind of our classic last question, which is in a pinch, if someone scrolls for some reason to the very end of this podcast and um, they just listen to this one thing is if you are waiting for your coffee at Starbucks, 
Um, you're getting whatever your order is. You have about two minutes and someone comes up to you, recognize you after listening to this podcast becomes because it becomes a hit. They ask you, how do I get healthy? What do you tell them in two minutes? Two minutes. Wow. All right. Um, I think the main things are, you know, one, uh, you know, I think getting away from what, you know, health of being the specifics of primary prevention, I think really find things in life that you enjoy to do, but are healthy as well. Things that you can incorporate in your life, make habits, whether it's walking through the botanical gardens, whether it's running, whether it's swimming, it doesn't have to be something high impact or high intensity cardio, but things that just get you to move, be outside, be connected, be with others. I think anything that you can incorporate, you know, that, that gets you moving and gets you connected with other people helps address both physical and mental health. I think being connected with others is a huge key. Talk about loneliness in this country, particularly for young adults and its impact on mental health. Uh, And I think things that, you know, in our days of our phones and our computers and our screens, getting out into the world, nature, uh, the more activity, the more connectivity, the better we're going to be. And I think that would be my, my biggest push uh, and making time and, and, and holding boundaries from our work life for the rest of our life to make time for that uh, would be my recommendation. Excellent. I love it. You have a website. Um, I will already be linking that, but where else can people find you? Where do you want people to go? What do you want people to see? Oh, thanks. You know, I, I have a website. I probably need to update it. Uh, J- yeah, the last article was in 2020. I'm looking forward to some more writing. Yeah, COVID has taken the, you know, talk about concentration and focus. It's, it's been hard to kind of sit and sustain, but um, hopefully soon there'll be some more stuff. But uh, my website, jtobinmd.com, you can Google me. There's, you know, some pieces I, I've wrote that have been in the Washington Post. There's some other stuff that's out there, but uh, hopefully there'll be some new stuff in the in the future uh, to, to get out in the, into the blog space. Dr. Topin, thank you so much for coming on. I thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you. Um, if you guys are listening to this, Definitely go check out all those links because his articles are pretty good. Well, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. This has been uh, been a privilege uh, to be here. Uh, thanks and good luck with the rest of uh, rest of your intern year and finally getting into PMR, which is, I know, the, the payoff at the end of that. So. Absolutely. Can't wait for it. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help us spread the message of prevention, first off, rate and review this podcast. Second off, you can find our content on our social media platforms at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next one.